Excellent. Well, good morning, everybody. So um, most of you know me, I think, with the exception of you two. So we'll make it a little awkward since it's all personal here um, and informal. So um, my name's Sean Cooper. Your name is? Janessa and Luke. Okay, Luke and Janessa, nice to meet both of you. These other four know me <coughs> quite well. So um, I office with three of them, uh, and I went to college with Michael. So there's a lot of history in the room prior to that. But um, uh, for you guys, since you don't know me, um, Sean Cooper, been at UBC now for about two and a half, going on three years. This is my second tour of duty. I was here as a college student from 2002 to 2005. And I am currently serving as one of the pastoral residents, which is why I office with all these guys. And so this morning, I have been asked to teach on the history of missions. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And a couple housekeeping items before we get into that is for if you picked up a handout, which I see that all of you did, um, there's a couple things that have been switched up and flipped. So this is one of the reasons why I um, am never a fan of handouts, because when I decide to change something, um, it confuses everybody. But they can be helpful for those who want to take notes off of them. So uh, now that my rant's over with, let me tell you about the things that are going to be switched so that you can follow along with me. So on page one, we're going to switch A and B, just so you know. Okay, so we'll start with B uh, and then move into A and then accordingly. All right. And then number two, on the second page, as we work our way into the errors of missions history, um, I've included one more person that we're going to talk about. So after we talk about Hudson Taylor, uh, we're going to spend just a brief interlude talking about Lottie Moon, which should be a very familiar name to all of us in this room. So if you just want to add her in somewhere underneath Hudson Taylor, uh, that should get us squared away moving forward. So um, with that, let me pray, and then I want to start by opening us up with a question. Sound good? All right, Father, thank you for this morning and an opportunity to be reminded of your great power and grace um, at work in the lives of your people uh, who have gone before us. Father, we pray that this morning would be used once again um, to inspire us, to encourage us, um, and convict us. And for some of us in this room, myself included, um, who have heard these stories many times, um, I pray that you would renew them for us um, and that we would hear them with um, ears of sobriety. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me open with a very simple and straightforward question. Why might the study of the history of missions be important? Yeah, so um, Kellen responded with knowing the background gives you a basis for moving forward in the future. So that's one reason. There's many. And so what might be a couple other ones? <clears throat> yeah, um, to learn the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's exactly right. All the people that we're going to talk about this morning um, are part of the fall, just like us. And so there's a tendency when you have conversations about church missions histories, uh, to it, histories, <laughs> church missions history, to sort of exonerate some of these people, um, to put them up on a pedestal when in fact they had 
a number of their own flaws and shortcomings that God chose to work in and through in spite of them, just like he does us. So yeah, um, we look at church missions history, we can learn the good, the bad, and the ugly. What might be a couple other reasons. Yeah, Cole, so exactly. We have something to gain um, from the good, the bad, and the ugly, not only to observe it and see it, but to gain from it in the sense that uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel necessarily. Uh, I think that part of modernity and post-modernity leaves us with this fascination and kind of a love affair with novelty and things that are new. Uh, and history has something to tell us about those who have gone before us and done it, such that we don't necessarily have to reinvent what they already did, right? And so there's great value in looking back at history so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So, good. Maybe one more, and then we'll press on. Yeah, it can be very, very encouraging. How might it be encouraging, Zach? Yes. Yep, so it can be an encouragement for us to follow them. Um, as a part of the Simeon Trust Workshop for this week, we're working our way through the book of Second Timothy. And one of the big things that's going on is there's a transition between Paul and Timothy. And he's essentially passing the baton on to Timothy. And he tells him in a couple sections of the book about how Timothy has followed Paul's example. Like, Starting in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, he says to Timothy, you followed my example, right? And so there's a sense of encouragement where we can follow the examples of those who have gone before us. So yeah, in all the answers that we've given, there's a bit of overlap, but also a bit of distinction. So um, I always tell people whenever I ask with this question, why is it important for us to study church missions history? Um, the primary answer is because it's really his story, okay? I... Maybe you've heard that before. It's kind of this catchy way of explaining the value of history from a Christian worldview perspective. But I really, I believe it. I believe it's true, right? History really is, okay, it's his story. It's God's story. And it's God's story of doing a particular thing, redeeming a people for himself, right, from all peoples. Right? God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? That's the refrain of what the meta-narrative of Scripture is really about. God's redeeming a people to himself from all peoples. And that starts really historically when? <laughs> Genesis what, Michael? Genesis 1-1. Right? Like the story starts Genesis 1-1. Um, all stories have a good beginning, right? And the story of humanity, the story of Christianity, the story of God's redeeming purpose starts in the first verse on the first page of Scripture. Now, we're not going to go that far back, okay? Um, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to drop in 
really kind of on the last 300 years of Protestant missions history. Okay, so we're going to focus on a particular era or a particular time period would be a better way to say it. The last 300 years of Protestant missions history. So we're going to dive in at about 1700. So if you, <clears throat> right, and as we dive in it, 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 and look at the last 300 years of Protestant missions history, um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to narrow that even more, and we're going to look at four men, okay? We're going to look at one woman, and we're going to look at three eras, right? So four men, one woman, three errors, eras, errors, yeah, sorry, thank you, eras, thank you, not E-R-R-O-R, but E-R-A, <laughs> okay, eras, or time period, thank you, Michael, I appreciate the clarification, so four men, one woman, and three errors uh, during this time period, so if we fast forward about 200 years um, after Right, the Protestant Reformation, which really kind of gets off the ground in 1517 with Martin Luther when he nails the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church and challenges the Roman Catholic Church. If we fast forward about 200 years past that, we find ourselves in England and we are introduced to a man by the name of William Carey. Okay, who's heard of him? I suspect many of us have heard of him. William Carey. Um, and so what we're going to do is just, just going to peel back the, the lives of these people a little bit, right? This is just a thumbnail picture of these people. I would encourage you to go read biographies on these people and to get the full scoop um, on who they were and what God did in and through them. And so we begin with Carey, William Carey. As a young man, William Carey had a passion for history, science, and he was an ardent young naturalist. What I mean by naturalist was that he had a love for the outdoors, he loved being outdoors. He loved everything outdoors. Um, and so uh, was very interested in botany. Um, he was raised in a godly home, and he became a Christian uh, as a teenager. It was soon after becoming a Christian that he took a job as a shoe cobbler. And so as a shoe cobbler, um, Carrie was involved in what we would call blue-collar work. Right? He was a blue-collar tradesman, uh, and oftentimes I think that there's um, maybe stigma or caricatures um, of what blue-collar people are like. Uh, maybe they're not. We perceive them to be intelligent. Good morning. Um, but Carrie, on the other hand, was absolutely brilliant. Uh, he never finished high school. He never went to college, but by the age 21... He was self-taught in six different languages. And so, although he was not in the academy, although, um, right, he might not have been considered intellectual, uh, nothing could have been farther from the truth. He was brilliant. Theologically, he was a Calvinistic Baptist. And so, that gives us a little bit of a framework for where his theological convictions lied. Um, and he also has ties to us, Right? Um, as Baptists today. Carrie's passion for missions was a bit of a concoction of things um, that included feasting on Scripture. He was a man of God's Word. Uh, it also included an in-depth study 
of the Great Commission, in addition to his exposure to the world through the local newspaper. So keep in mind, right, no internet, no Facebook, uh, no way to access all the information that comes to us so quickly and immediately nowadays, uh, but it was through a local newspaper where he started to get exposure uh, to the world. In addition to that, you'll notice in this picture um, from a book that I actually found in the Kiev Theological Seminary Library about four years ago. I don't even know if it's still standing at this point. Um, there was this picture in this book um, about Baptist missions history, and I snapped a shot of it because I think it tells a lot of Kerry's story. You'll notice um, that while he's here working on shoes, over here on his desk, he's got an open Bible, right? And he's got his books, his language books. And then above that, he has a map of the world. And so while he would sit and work as a cobbler on shoes, he would study the scriptures in the original languages, and then he would pray over the world based upon the information that he was receiving from the local newspaper that he got. And so it was really kind of through that mixture of things that he became convicted um, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He believed that the Great Commission was for all Christians in all generations, and he was utterly convinced that God had one mission to reach all nations, and that he had one method, and that was all believers, right? It was through the local church that God was going to reach the ends of the earth. And so Kerry decided, um, as his convictions grew deeper and deeper and deeper, he decided that he was going to go public, and he was going to share what God was doing in his heart, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus says the mouth what? Speaks. So if you want to know what somebody's passionate and interested about, just listen to them. Um, because as God works in our heart, those things tend to come out of our mouth. And so God was working in his heart in some pretty radical and profound ways, and so he decided that he was going to finally talk about it. Um, and not only do we see that, right, with Jesus' words that out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, but you see that in the epistles as well. We believe, Paul says, therefore we what? We speak. And so he was under deep conviction about the status of the world, and he was under deep conviction about what God's word had to say. So he decides to go public with a group of local ministers. So he was part of a group of local ministers who would meet um, on a somewhat regular basis, and he thought that would be a good place to go in sharing his convictions first to get a feel for what they might have thought or what input they might have had to say. And so he, he's sharing with them one day about what he was com these conclusions that he was coming to um, one of the men, the leader of that group, a guy by the name of John Ryland, responded to what Kerry was sharing and said this. It's a famous line. Uh, some of you probably have heard of it. As he was sharing his passion, Ryland said to him, John Ryland, the, the gentleman leading the group, said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Maybe not the most encouraging line that someone could hear. Right, as they're growing in their passion and zeal for the world. Um, interesting, if you, take this, if you take this statement and you break it down theologically, um, what is true and false about this statement right here? Let me just pause and get your guys' feedback. Think, look at this statement and think about it theologically and tell me what's true and false about it. <laughs> okay, is that, is that true? Yeah, that part of it's true. God converts. 
He does convert when he pleases. Also true. The rest is wrong. What part is wrong, Zach Reeves? What is wrong about the second half of this quote, theologically? He does use us, right? The plain facts of Scripture is that, yes, God converts when he wants. It's his work, but he has instituted means through which that work is accomplished. Faith comes through hearing, Paul says in Romans ten seventeen, hearing through what? The word of God, right? Someone has to be sent, someone has to preach, someone has to speak, right? It's through the spoken word that creation comes into existence in Genesis 1, and it's through the spoken word that new creation comes into existence, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if anyone's in Christ, he's a what? New creature, and that happens when the gospel is preached and proclaimed. And so, yeah, God can do it whenever he wants, and he will be the one that does it, but he performs that through means. It's through Christians preaching, right? It's through the institution of the local church, Ephesians chapter 3, that those workers are sent, Acts chapter 13. So there's a number of instances where we have scriptural testimony that, yeah, God is sovereign, but with God's sovereignty, we also find scriptural warrant for man's what? Responsibility. And so in light of this, in light of of, of Ryland's opposition, it's interesting also not only to unpack this phrase theologically, but to think about where Carey's opposition came from. Yeah, it was actually from other Christians that Carey faced some of his most immediate opposition. So what do we make of that? Well, it's, there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus said himself that a man's enemies would be those of his own household. And he's quoting from Micah 7, 6, which was, you know, a, a minor prophet. And how were the prophets received? Who did they face the most opposition from? The house of Israel, right? The house of Judah. It was their own people that actually put up the strongest fight against what they had to say when it came to speaking God's truth. And so... Interesting that while we should certainly find, right, our communion, when we become a believer, we're not only united to Christ, but we're united to other believers. And it's from that body of believers that we're sent. It's from that body of believers that we're trained and equipped. But we also sometimes find that it's even within that body that there's misunderstandings. Um, there's not only misunderstandings, but there's some opposition, and we have to work through that together as a body of believers. And so, in response to Ryland's opposition, um, undeterred by his criticism, Carey decided that he was going to go on um, and publish um, what he was thinking. In those days, uh, as a friend of mine, Todd says, you didn't tweet about it, uh, you published. And so you wrote. And so what Carey did was he put his thoughts down in a book and here's the book, right? Here's a facsimile print of the book. And the title of the book was An Inquiry into the Obligation. Listen to the title carefully. An Inquiry into the Obligation. So what's Carrie noting? There's a requirement. There's an obligation. And where is he getting the phrase obligation? Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he is under obligation, right, to preach the gospel, right? He's compelled to preach the gospel, so under an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means 
for the conversion of the heathen. So Carrie understood that there was both a responsibility and that that responsibility was fulfilled through believers preaching the gospel. So he publishes this 87-page pamphlet. At that time, it was groundbreaking material. There was very little to almost nothing with regards to Protestant missions at that time. And so this kind of hits the scene um, hot on the press. And um, it ends up eventually making its way over to America. A number of Protestants were reading it in England at the time. Eventually, he would go on to preach his final sermon shortly after publishing this book. And the title of his sermon was Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. Expect Great Things from God. Attempt great things for God. Why why might Carrie title this sermon this way? Why can Christians expect great things from God, and why can Christians attempt great things for God? Is this arrogance? Or is this biblical? That's a question I'm asking us. Why, why can we expect great things from God and why can we attempt great things for God? Yeah, we can expect great things from him because he has made great promises. Yeah, so if we think about the corpus of Scripture and you go back to Genesis 3.15, post-fall, when God gives us a first hint of the gospel promise, he promises like Michael says, but then Cole said he not only makes promises, he fulfills them, right? The seed of the woman actually showed up and accomplished the work of crushing the serpent's head. And so in light of that, we have great promises and we have plenty of scriptural testimony to prove that God is good for his word, right? And not only do we see that promise being made in Genesis 3.15, but we're going to get a fuller expression of it in Genesis 12.1 through 3, right? Where God's going to promise to Abraham that through him all the nations are going to be blessed, which is picked up in the New Testament with the Great Commission passages, and those were all of the things, right, that Kerry was devoting his study and attention to. And so he knew, right, I can go do this, I can expect this, Right? I can expect great things from God, and I can attempt great things for God, because he makes promises and he keeps them. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. He's unchanging. And so there's a number of things about the character of God that have a lot to say about our labor in missions work. So he preaches his last sermon, and he eventually boards a boat in 1793 where he sails to India. And... Um, for the next, gosh, yeah, for the next several decades, Kerry is in India laboring where he endured countless sufferings. Um, and we see, as we look at Protestant missions history, that there is a pattern that is involved with pioneering gospel work, um, and it comes frequently at a very high cost. There's a high pot price to pay, so to speak. Not only did Kerry himself suffer, but his family suffered immensely. They dealt with constant opposition. Um, Some of Carrie's own opposition began as early as age seven, uh, where it was discovered that he suffered from a tormenting skin disease 
that prevented him from going outside and being in the sun. Um, His sister, I believe her name was Mary, uh, would write about how she would listen to him cry through the night because what's the conflict in play here? He loves the outdoors, right? He's an ardent young naturalist. He loves botany. He wants to be outside. He goes outside and the sun, right, agitates this skin disease that he's got. And so then he goes to bed at night um, and he sleeps through the night in severe pain. Why else is this a problem? Where's he set sail for? <laughs> India, <laughs> right? It's, it's sunny, it's hot, the weather is fierce there. And so, yeah, this begins at age seven. In addition to his tormenting skin disease, um, other oppositions and struggles that they faced, his wife Dorothy was illiterate. Uh, don't mistake that for meaning that she was dumb, okay? She was not dumb. She just couldn't do what? She couldn't read and write. Uh, Todd informed me that, um, that she actually signed her marriage certificate. Does anybody know? With a what, Cole? With an X. Right? She couldn't even write her own name, so she just signs her marriage certificate with an X, which is very problematic if you're crossing a culture and you're going to be dealing with language barriers, you're going to be dealing with communication barriers. Um, there's a whole host of things that arise out of that problem in and of itself. The very day that they set sail... Uh, Carrie was 32 years old. Dorothy refused to board the boat. Um, It was only after constant pleas and countless tears that she finally agreed to set sail with him. Um, And I don't put all the blame on her because if you read Carrie's biography, he led her terribly. Um, He had been thinking about missions for a long, long time. And it wasn't until up until, I think it was maybe a few months before they set sail, that he actually decided to drop that news on her, that they were going to leave to go overseas. And so she was given very little runway to think through it, pray through it, talk through it with him. Um, He essentially dumped it on her. When they did set sail, She was given 24 hours to gather all of their belongings in addition to their four children and their one newborn child. Their boat ride was five months at sea. Um, Nowadays, we call that a long-term mission trip, right? Um, And before sailing, uh, Carrie's Christian father called him a madman. So once again, we see opposition, right, coming from not only other Christians, but even their blood family members. When they were attempting to raise support, Carrie was told from one of the local churches that was a part of sending him that charity began at home and that there was no, why would we be interested in giving you money to go overseas when charity should begin here? And so eventually he was sent with about $150 in his pocket and that $150 was supposed to get them through the first year of ministry. But after three months, Carrie's partner, his ministry partner, had blown all of their money three months into their one-year term, and they were dead broke. Um, Within their first seven years of living in India, they moved five times. So when you think about stress factors that are involved, uh, what are one of those factors? Kids, new job, and what? (laughs) Moving, right? The stress of moving. The weather there was unbearable. Kerry said in his journal at one point in time, since the day I stepped into India, I have never felt a cold blast of wind in my face. The food was unsettling, and they constantly battled with dysentery for months on end. Nine months after their arrival, when their battle with dysentery began, it finally climaxed when their five-year-old son Peter um, ended up dying from it. And um, if I were to read you the account 
of what happened whenever he buried Peter, um, it would probably bring you to tears. Um, he was sick with dysentery. Dorothy was sick with dysentery. Uh, he actually ended up having to employ some Muslims and Hindus to dig the hole for his son so that the jackals would not eat his body. Um, and so they buried him. In the aftermath of Peter passing away, it eventually drove Dorothy insane, literally. And Carrie had to lock her up in a room um, because of her lunacy. Seven years, it was seven years, you guys, before he saw his very first convert. He was constantly terrified of riding back to England under the pressure to produce results. And there is so much to be said in that single line. Um, When you look a lot at what's going on in modern missions today, uh, I sense that there's an urgency to see a lot of results. And so one uh, one can learn from Kerry. He refused. He said, man, I'm going to set my hand to the plow. I'm going to do what's necessary. And he preached and preached. Um, The story of... uh, of him baptizing uh, his first convert. Um, in, what river was it, Todd? Tell me, the Ganges? Yeah, he baptized his first convert in the river Ganges, and while he was baptizing his first convert, um, his wife, Dorothy, could be heard shouting um, from the riverbanks because, again, she'd gone crazy. And so, in addition to that, he'd grown bald from sickness and stress before he was even 30. So, there you go. <laughs> Um, there's a picture of what it looked like. There were numerous attempts made upon him by India, uh, the Indian government, to have him kicked out of the country. And it was after 19 years of translation work, no computers and no hard drive, after 19 years of translation work, he wakes up one morning, looks out of his house, and sees that his translation shack has caught fire and burnt to the ground. They have no idea how it caught fire, but 19, work, 19 years of translation work, right, up in smoke. Um, which would have given anybody reason to quit and come home, but rather they are told, right, we're told from, from his journal entry that literally the next day, literally the next day, they went through and started sifting through the ashes and picking up pieces from the printing press to start the work all over again. Eventually, he'd go on to bury two wives, two sons, two daughters, numerous co-workers, and his own father. To this day, his own bones are buried on Indian soil. And the reason that Kerry matters as we talk about Protestant missions history um, is because he's often referred to, and this is an arguable point, he's often referred to as the father um, of modern missions. He, uh, He said this, he said, I'm not afraid of failure, I'm actually afraid of succeeding at things that do not matter. And one of the other reasons that we talk about him is because not only is he the father of modern missions, but because he's primarily responsible for pioneering the gospel to the coastland. Okay, so look up here. Um, Kerry went to India, but on the screen I've got a picture of the country of Nigeria to illustrate that at this point in Protestant missions history, as they're starting to get Protestant missionaries out the door in England and in America, at this point, the farthest that they're going to make it is they're going to set sail and they're literally going to stop and get off the boat and start their ministry right where? Right right on the coastland. And so Kerry is, is responsible for sort of kick-starting that process. Now, as we move on from Kerry, I want to introduce us to another Baptist missionary that we have heritage with. 
um, a guy by the name of Adoniram Judson. He was inspired by Carrie, and he set sail for Burma 19 years later as a 25-year-old man. And if Carrie is considered the father of modern missions, um, Judson would be considered the father of American Baptist missions. So we've crossed the pond from England now over to America, Judson being considered the father of American Baptist missions. Now prior to setting sail, Judson had fallen madly in love with a young woman by the name of Anne Hasseltine. And they were married, listen carefully, they were married on February 5th, 1812. 14 days later, two weeks, on February 19th, they set sail for foreign soil. Two weeks later, and just like, just like William Carey and Dorothy Carey, they honeymooned at sea for five months. Okay? Just imagine what that may have involved. Some uber-fast marital sanctification, you could say. Now, before marrying Anne... A, um, Judson had requested her father's blessing and permission to take her with him. And knowing that his plans to take her with him would be costly, he wrote a letter to Judson's fa- or, excuse me, to Anne's father. And I want to read you the letter. Okay, how many of us have, have heard the letter? Some of us, okay. The letter says this. He says to Mr. Hasseltine, I have now, sir, to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure, her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, and whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you, sir, consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls and for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Um, I have shared this quote a lot. And I can assure you that the way I shared it before I had daughters is very different than the way I would share it having daughters. Um, To think about what my response may have been as a father um, is a very weighty matter. When I look at my seven-year-old and my four-year-old and think about what it might be like for a young man to ask me for the same kind of blessing. We know that eventually Mr. Hasseltine consented and he sent his daughter off to never see her again. Just like Carrie, it was seven years before Judson saw his first convert, and it took him a decade to master the Burmese language. Why, let me pause and ask a question at this point, okay? 
why would language mastery be so important for pioneer missionary work? Yeah, so it's one thing to ask, where's the banyo, right? It's another thing to be able to speak at a heart level to those people. Yeah, that's one reason. Give me some other reasons, because there's a, there's a handful of them, and I think they're worth talking about. <laughs> yeah, so Michael, what do, you, what do you mean by gospel fluency? I don't deny it, but what do you mean by it? Other reasons why? Todd? Absolutely, Jess. Yeah, there's a sense in which literally the essence and nature of the Trinity is that, right, God is a sending God. The Father sends the Son, okay, The Father sends the Son. We see this in the Gospel of John. Upwards of 40 times, Jesus is referred to as the sent one. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, right, not only does the Father send the Son, but the Father and the Son now send the Spirit, right? So the whole Trinity is involved in the work of sending. They're coming to us. The good news of the Gospel is not that we go up. This is not the Tower of Babel. It's that they come down, right? They come to us on our terms, um, even to the point that Christ himself Philippians 2, right, he puts on human flesh. And so speaking the language is a way that we come to them on their terms. Absolutely. Give me maybe one or two other ones real quick. Because I bring this up to simply say that um, I think for a long time, I don't know that I understood uh, why language proficiency was so important. And it's only in recent years that I've grown in this conviction Um, And it has to do with some of what Jess is talking about, right? What Janessa is talking about, what Michael's hinted on. What are some other reasons why language proficiency is so important? Okay.
Absolutely. So the fancy missiological term that we use where we deal with the combining of different religions is called syncretism, right? So when we don't learn the language proficiently, we run the risk of them misunderstanding what the difference is between Christianity and Jesus as opposed to what they're coming out of or what they may be trying to attach to that. Um, maybe one other one before I share from Scripture. Go ahead, Kellen. Yeah, exactly. So um, I've never learned another language. I failed Spanish, and they happen to actually use some of the same letters that we do, which is embarrassing. But for a number of my friends who have learned multiple languages and who are church planning overseas, um, yeah, there's they'll tell you that language is the key to culture, right? Like that's that's the way in, and it's not just the key to culture, but like Todd said, um, it's the key to actually relationships with the people at a heart level, like Janessa saying, but. Like, those are all practical reasons for sure. Scripturally, okay, and those are all great reasons practically. I'm not arguing with them. Scripturally, what is the mandate that the church has been given? To go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then what, Cole? Teaching them to obey all. So Paul says the whole counsel of God, Zach, like you brought up. If I'm going to teach it all... (laughs) I'm going to have to be proficient in language. And not only do we see it in Matthew 28, but again, as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I'm preparing for Simeon, the Simeon Trust Workshop this week. And my passage that I'm working through that I've been assigned is 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. And let me read you the first few verses. You then, my child, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And here it comes. It's like, it's like Matthew 28, 2.0. He says to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust to faithful men. What you've heard. So there's a hearing element that means Timothy needs to be able to receive through hearing and have an appropriate understanding of what sound words include. And that's Paul's referring to sound words up in chapter 1, verse 13. And then he goes on to say, I want you to entrust to faithful men what you've heard from me who will be able to teach others also. So all Paul's doing is riffing off of what? Matthew 28. He's doing exactly what Jesus had told him to do, and now he's doing it with Timothy, and he's expecting Timothy to do the other. And so really, there's practical reasons for why language proficiency is important, but more than practical reasons, there's biblical warrant for why we need to learn the language. And so, having given my rant on language, right, it took took, uh, Judson a decade to learn Burmese. Um, And really, in 1824, uh, two years after he had finally finished learning Burmese, in 1824, after 12 years of being on the field, um, all hell broke loose when war broke out between Burma and England. And all foreigners who were in Burma were rounded up and they were thrown into prison. Judson himself was rounded up with 99 other um, English POWs, and he was thrown into what was called the death prison. Um, And for the next two years, he suffered brutally uh, in what was called the death prison. The death prison was this giant box um, that the Burmese people had made to throw POWs in, and the one that he was in was a 40-foot 
by 30-foot box that was five feet tall. So just to give you some parameters, that's about the size of this room. Okay, so if you look around, that's roughly the size of this room, five feet tall, which means what, Michael Gaddy? You don't stand, right? You crawl around inside the box in your feces, in the blood of those, right, who have busted open their knees and their elbows, where your food is thrown onto the floor and you are fed. And in addition to that, crawling around, you were bound, these POWs were bound with five shackles from their ankles, right, from their ankles to their waist, weighing a total of 14 pounds. And they would crawl around with these shackles on. At night, they would run a bamboo pole. They would take these guys out of the box and they would hang them upside down and they would run a bamboo pole right through their ankles and string them upside down. And Judson would talk about how the mosquitoes would come in and feast off of their, right, the POW's bloody wounds. And you couldn't get any sleep at night, not because you were hanging upside down, but because of all your fellow POWs screaming for relief from these mosquitoes. And so, brutal, brutal situation. 21 days after his imprisonment, his wife Anne gave birth to their second child, And without protection or support, she eventually grew terribly emaciated. She was skinny. She was malnourished. And so she began to start begging the guards for help. And eventually they let Judson out of the prison during the day, at which point he walked around in his shackles begging Burmese women to breastfeed his newborn child. He was the only Englishman to survive the 100 British POWs that were thrown into the death prison, which just tells you that God's providence was on his life. Um, Eventually, out of nowhere, three years later, excuse me, eventually out of nowhere, he was released from the death prison, and it was three years after coming out of the box. You can imagine whatever PTSD he may have had. As he's recovering from that, three years later, Anne and his child um, end up passing away. And as a result, it plunged Judson into despair and depression, where he journeyed out into the woods to become a hermit. He dug a hole in the ground and sat next to the hole where he burned his journals. So we have very little information on him because all of his writings he burned in this hole, waiting to starve to death and eventually die and roll over into this hole and go to be with God. Um, Eventually, light dawned on the situation whenever he got word that his brother Nathaniel had actually come to Christ, and it was the good news of his brother coming to Christ that eventually brought him out of this depression state um, and got him back on his feet. He nearly spent 40 years on the field, and eventually he died on a boat where he was thrown overboard and he was buried at sea. Today, there are estimates of over 3,500 congregations in Burma and over a half a million believers that can trace their spiritual heritage back to Judson, which is astonishing. Um, people on Burma today will say that his translation of the scriptures is some of the best Burmese that, that can be read. And so he was a linguist genius. Um, so much more could be said about the fact that he was very gifted intellectually, much like Carrie. Um, as I think he'd been taught to read, his mom taught him to read when he was three years old in a week's time. Um, And so, very gifted in that particular way. At one point in his ministry, he told a particular field candidate that was looking to come out onto the field with him, he said this, Remember, young man, that a large portion of those who come out on a mission to the east die. 
within five years after leaving their native land. Walk softly, therefore. Death is narrowly watching your steps. He, with Carrie, um, continued to bring the gospel to the coastlands, but if we fast forward and kind of push the pedal to the ground, um, history introduces us to the second era of missions history, Protestant missions history, with a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. Taylor was raised in a loving Methodist home. His father was a doctor. But interestingly enough, his father never demanded that his son pursue a career in the same path. And so he was given liberty uh, to think about where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do upon graduating and starting a career. By God's providence, um, his parents were arrested by a passion for the country of China. So if you were to find yourself in the Taylor home, they were frequently talking about China, right? There were articles about China, conversations about China, maps about China. It was China, China, China in the Taylor household. And so before their son was even born, because God had stirred this passion in Mr. and Mrs. Taylor's heart, before he was even born, they were praying, dear God, if you should give us a son, um, would you grant that he might work for you? In China, which is so different than probably the prayers that most parents are praying for their five-year-old kids, right? (laughs) Um, I'm mostly just praying that God will make my kids do what I want them to do so that I don't lose my mind. Um, But they were praying that God would send their, their very own son. And so by age five, Taylor was telling anyone and everyone that he knew, friends, family, people who were coming in and out of their house by age five, that his plan was to grow up and to become a missionary. However, at age nine, only four years later, he had completely forsaken his parents' faith. He was agnostic, and it wasn't until the age 17 that he was finally converted when he stumbled into his father's office while his parents were gone on a weekend trip out of town And he picked up a gospel track where he read about the atonement. And it was through reading about the atonement and the gospel track that God converted him and gave him a new heart. And the deeper that he explored the needs in China, and the more convinced he became that it was necessary that he go himself. And so it was after attending church, if I remember correctly, one morning, he was walking out on the beach, um, and the matter was eventually settled whenever he said this. Unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out onto the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service. His parents' prayers were finally answered, and at age 21, he set sail for China, where he spent the next 50 one years living there and laboring there. Much like Carrie and Judson, Taylor placed a high premium on language proficiency. Um, there was a quote that I wanted to share with you guys, but I couldn't get it dropped into the PowerPoint soon enough, where he was criticizing um, a young missionary following in his footsteps by the name of C.T. Studd, who was praying that God would gift him with tongues so that he might be able to expedite the language learning process. And essentially, Taylor mocked him and said, 
uh, God will do no such thing because the whole point of learning language is that God is going to hammer you into the conformity and the image of Christ. And so for you to skip that process, stop praying that God would give you the gift of tongues and do the hard work of learning the language. So um, he had a good example. Stud had a good example in Taylor. And so why do we mention Taylor? Simply because he ushers us into, and by the way, if you guys are looking at the clock, we'll speed up on these last couple As we move out of the first era, the gospel has now moved away from the coastland where Carrie and Judson were primarily responsible for taking it to. And now, Taylor realizes he's going to have to penetrate farther inland. And so, it's not going to be enough to spend his time out on the coast with other British missionaries who were living in opulence, but he was determined to take the gospel inland. And as a part of that, he was responsible for contextualizing the gospel, which is, uh, does anybody know what contextualization is? It's a bit of a hairy topic in the missions world. But what's contextualization, generally speaking? Yeah, so how do we come to those people on their terms, like Jess said earlier, without compromising the truths of the gospel, right? So Paul was contextualizing the gospel with the Corinthian church whenever he said, I could have preached to you a certain way with lofty language, but I actually chose not to because he knew that that would be a distraction and a roadblock to the Corinthians, that they would get tangled up in his rhetoric and lofty language, as opposed to experiencing the power of the gospel apart from that. And so that would be just one quick example of a basic contextualization. So, yeah, Taylor takes the gospel inland. Some of the ways that he contextualized the gospel was he began to dress like the Chinese people. He began to eat like them. Um, He grew out his hair. He shaved his head, put it in a ponytail, dyed it. And for us, that might not seem like a big deal, but at that point in time, it was huge. Nobody was doing that. People thought that Taylor was crazy for going that far uh, in contextualizing the gospel, but we see that through his work, as we move forward in Protestant missions history, the gospel is going deeper and deeper in from the coastlands inland. And so, having taken a look at Carrie, Judson, and Taylor... I want to introduce you guys real quick. I told you that we were going to talk about what? Four men, one woman, and three what? Three eras. So we've covered three men. So let me take just a second to briefly introduce you. There she is. Tiny Glory. Cole calls her. A female contemporary of Hudson Taylor's was a woman by the name of Lottie Moon. She has a long-standing history among Baptists. She was a four-foot, three-inch pistol known as the patron saint of Baptist missions. As a young girl, she was a rebel in college, but she was converted through a Bible study that she'd been invited to. And it was actually upon graduation um, that she went and taught for a season as a teacher, as a school teacher. It was hearing... In a local church setting, a pastor preached on John 4.35, where Jesus tells the disciples to lift up their eyes because the harvest is white, that she was convicted to set sail for China and follow on the coattails of Hudson Taylor. As her ministry began to grow in China, she 
soon found herself backed into a corner because there was more work for her to accomplish um, on her own. And so she reached out for help, requesting that there would be more laborers and more workers sent to her. And so she wrote a letter and sent it back um, to the Southern Baptist missionaries. And the letter says this. Um, It is odd, she wrote, that there are a million Baptists of the South and they can only furnish me three men for all of China. Odd, she says, odd that with 500 preachers in the state of Virginia, we must rely on a Presbyterian to fill a Baptist pulpit. I wonder how these things look in heaven. They certainly look very queer in China. (laughs) Right? Send me more help. Right? If you don't want me to preach because you don't think it's appropriate for women to teach and preach and serve as an elder, then do what? Send me help. So she's asking for help because she's being handcuffed from the work of teaching and preaching based upon theological convictions, which I would agree with, okay? But in her cry for help, this is what she's sent, right? This is what she's sent. Put yourself in her shoes. Imagine, what would you do? How would you respond? in that situation. And so, she's one of many women um, who have gone before us in Protestant missions history. Uh, The organization that I previously worked for, a ministry called The Traveling Team, published a fantastic book that I would encourage all of you to get your hands on um, called Here Am I, Send My Sister. Um, And it gives an account of a number of female missionaries who were part of pioneering works Uh, in Protestant missions history. So if you want a good read, I would encourage you to go grab a copy of that and learn from those who have gone before us. All of that, you guys, brings us to our final man and our final era of Protestant missions history, where we are introduced in 1917 to a young man by the name of Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend. Um, He was swept up as a part of the student volunteer movement in the late 1800s and the early 1940s, and was challenged and recruited to consider giving his life full-time overseas. And that began, that began his sophomore year with a short-term missions trip to to Guatemala. And so it was on a short-term trip where God kick-started this third era of Protestant missions history. And here's what happened when Townsend arrived in Guatemala. His work there was to, in, was to be involved in passing out Spanish Bibles to the Guatemalan people. And so he began passing out these Bibles to the Guatemalan people, upon which they would open it up, sort of stare at it in dismay, close it, and hand it back to him. And this happened numerous times until finally, at one point, uh, Townsend employed a, a, a translator to ask the Guatemalans what was happening. Why wouldn't they take the Bible? Why were they closing it up? What was the hang-up? And Townsend found out through the translator that one of the Guatemalans said this. He said, if your God is so smart, why doesn't he speak my language? And now we're back again to the conversation of linguistics. Right? If your God is so smart, what he found out was that it was not enough to simply pass out Bibles that had been translated into Spanish 
what he soon discovered was that there were multiple dialects, right, within even the Spanish language itself, which set these people apart entirely from their being able to understand the gospel or read about the gospel. And so this sent him on a mission um, to start gathering information uh, from anthropologists and others. And that work included him initially discovering that there were roughly 500 languages. There were roughly 500 languages that had not been translated um, in Scripture, and these people had almost zero access to the gospel. Um, interesting fact, um, if I remember correctly, and someone needs, someone's going to have to double-check me on this, uh, for those of you who had a chance to meet Mike Griffiths at the church, um, Mike's grandparents um, were, I don't know if they were friends, but they, they, they crossed paths with Townsend on a number of occasions. And so just some interesting history that we've got a, a former missionary serving at our church that has some direct connection to Mr. Townsend. And so he soon realized that 500 wasn't getting close and later went on to discover that there was over 1,500 languages, upwards of 1,500 languages that had no scripture. Now we know that there's how many? Does anybody know that are without a single verse in scripture? Yeah, some would say somewhere between 2,100 and 3,100, depending on whether you're talking about whether they have any scripture or whether they have any scripture in a church. So we're pushing over 2,000 languages that we're aware of in the world today that have no scripture. And so Townsend went on to start a ministry called Wycliffe Bible Translators, um, where they prioritized, right, where they prioritized translating the Bible into the mother tongue, Jenna, back to what you said, the heart language of the people so that they might be able to hear. So this morning, um, just taking a look, my aim was to just give us kind of a, a broad sweep of really the last 300 years of Protestant missions history, looking at William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, Lottie Moon, and Cameron Townsend. And what Townsend discovered is, is that it wasn't enough for these guys to take the gospel to the coastlands, and it wasn't enough for Taylor and those who followed him to take the gospel inland. What Townsend discovered um, was that through languages, there are these things that we define in the anthropological world called people groups, right? There are these pockets of people, and what sets them apart from one another could be Religious boundaries, geographical boundaries, it could be monetary boundaries, but primarily a people group primarily is defined by a linguistic boundary. And so if you take, just for example, the country of Nigeria, um, we know that in Nigeria there are over 450 people groups in the country of Nigeria alone. And why all this matters for us moving forward in missions is because now the question shifts. It's not about where we're going. But the question that we're primarily asking is to whom are we going, right? Not where are we going, but to whom are we going? And as we evaluate to whom we are going, we are going to have to think about the cost that's involved. We're going to have to think about the training that's required. And we're going to have to think about both the goer and the sender as it relates to um, the work of missions in the local church. And so that's just a thumbnail. Um, of Protestant missions history. Four men, right? One woman and three eras. Michael, what time do we generally get done? About three minutes from now? Okay. So what if we take 
just the last three to four minutes and spend a little bit of time just reflecting on some lessons that we can learn um, from those who have gone before us. What are some lessons that we can learn as we think about the gospel advancing from the coastlands, inlands to unreached people groups and the lives of those who have gone before us? A couple thoughts? Yeah, don't, don't brief your spouse that you plan to become a missionary uh, a few months in advance before you leave. Not smart. Okay? That'd be one lesson. Low-hanging fruit. Yep. Other lessons that we can learn from those who have gone before us? Yep, that's exactly right. Suffering is, is guaranteed. Um, that's true of the Christian life, but it is certainly true of the pioneering missionary life. Yeah. Here's how hard my life is. Yeah, missionary life is is suffering. Um, Meredith and I have good friends that are serving in Papua New Guinea. They've been there for, I think, close to five years now. Uh, they're home right now on furlough because their team has imploded um, because of team conflict, because they recently found out that one of their teammates um, has been lying, has not been accomplishing uh, the work that they have been tasked to do. They're not filling out their accountability reports. Um, and, yeah, so they've had to uproot their family. They've come back here and they have no idea when they're returning, whether they'll have teammates, and what the work looks like moving forward. So the emotional stress, right, the suffering that's involved there, Michael, to your point, your friend. Maybe what are a couple other lessons, big picture lessons? Yeah, so the importance of language. This is, this is a really, really big deal. Um, we can thank the Lord for working through Right, men like Cameron Townsend who discovered this reality. And we can thank the Lord for those who went before him who prioritized it. And so, yeah, we're going to have to learn the language. We can't do the work without it. It's an, it's an absolute contingency. There's no questions. If we plan to plant a church and if we plan to stay there long term, those caveats given. Right? If you're going to go for a summer, no, you don't have to learn the language. I, I'm not saying that, but if you're going to plan to go there long term, that's what it's going to demand. So suffering, right, language. Yeah, our goal is not to produce the results, but to be faithful. Kerry said at the end of his life that his goal was to merely be a plotter, to plot along and to do the work faithfully. They're gone. Yeah. 
they set their hand to the plow and they didn't turn back. They counted the cost and they actually have now received the reward. Right? The re- and what? <laughs> it's still coming in. Right? In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Paul's looking at his death in 2 Timothy and he tells Timothy, I am being poured out like a drink offering, but the good news is I am about to receive the crown of righteousness. Right? Like they're dead. Paul's dead. Timothy's dead. They're dead. When Moses is about to die, he hands a baton to Joshua and the Lord says to him, right, Moses, you're about to die. It's time to pass it on. So yeah, they're dead. And so the gospels come to us because, quite frankly, it's on its way to someone else. And so there's a reward to be had. There's suffering involved. It will require training. And it demands that we aim to be faithful instead of produce results. So many lessons that we could learn from Protestant missions history. Thanks for letting me share with you guys this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this morning and a chance just to witness your promises come to fulfillment and your faithfulness unfold. Um, Lord, we pray that you would um, raise up laborers at University Baptist Church um, and that our eyes would be able to see the salvation of the Lord and that we would be able to see unreached language groups reached with the gospel through our meager efforts. Um, Lord, I pray that people would, in fact, uh, count the cost and that they would believe that the reward awaits them. Um, Lord, thank you for working in the lives of fallen people to give us encouragement as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.